The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, August the 16th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Many people, including me, believe that the most profound and dramatic changes that are happening in politics and society across the world at the moment are being driven by new forms of communication which are made possible by digital technology, social media and the internet. It is a huge subject that touches on every facet of our lives and of our society and it brings in questions of free speech, accountability, manipulation by invisible actors with hidden agendas, the increasing polarisation of political views and the rise of new forms of political extremism. In recent days, we've seen events such as the racist mass murder of unarmed people by a white supremacist in El Paso, Texas, being linked directly to far-right extremism on the website 8chan. Much closer to home, we've seen demonstrations and counter-demonstrations outside the Dublin offices of Google over the decision to take down the YouTube accounts of former presidential candidate Gemma O'Doherty. In this podcast, we're trying to look at the particular issues around radicalisation, disinformation and the amplification, sometimes unwittingly, of extremism online, along with the role of the big tech companies and what, if anything, can be done about it all. I should say that this conversation has already prompted us to think of several other podcasts we should think about doing on some of the issues which do come up. And I also want to say before we begin that we have made an editorial decision that we will not provide any space or time for the views expressed by Gemma O'Darty or by her supporters. Now, on with the podcast. Jane Souter is Director of the Institute for Future Journalism and Media at Dublin City University, and she has been a guest many times before. But Jane, for the purposes of this podcast, you're also involved with an other organisation called Provenance. What is that? Provenance is a, a Horizon 2020 research project that we're leading in DCU, which is looking at uh, tracking disinformation on social media, um, being able to, to mark uh, the likelihood of things being disinformation and also providing tools for people to be able to upskill so they themselves can do more research or understand more easily what's being targeted at them. OK, we might dig into that a little bit more a little later. Also here is Liz Carolyn, who's also been with us a few times previously about issues around transparency and online funding, particularly around elections. And she's now head of Digital Action. What is that, Liz? Yes, it's a, it's a new project we're setting up, which is going to be building out coalitions, looking at how we counter digital threats to democracy. Well, where to start? This is one of the questions I ask myself about. about this, this is such a huge subject. I mean, this is a politics podcast, and I personally think you could do a politics podcast, and there probably does do exist a couple of them, which are devoted solely to the impact of what's happening in our media and the way we communicate to, to societies, to every election, to the way our societies are ordered, um, to, to everything, really. To political, to, to political discourse, yeah. to how ideas get framed. Um, I see in, in Europe now they're trying to set up a new project which talks about how uh, values are informing different kinds of policies across Europe and in all the different countries and how those values are kind of made and framed across the internet and in social spaces. So, yeah, it's in every corner of our lives. And within that, there are obviously there are core questions and competing, you know, rights of free speech versus hate speech and where society's, you know, rules should lie and how we should actually get to grips with the way these technology change the rules, which we currently have about things like libel, defamation, hate speech, which, of course, vary from country to country. 
They do very hugely. Um, and I think we can see, you know, the um, kind of embedded in internet culture from the beginning was that sort of quite American First, First Amendment sort of almost uh, evangelical commitment to, um, to to free speech. And a sort of radical libertarianism almost. In yeah, yeah, and and a sort of, um, uh, you know, a, a free speech which doesn't necessarily uh, translate into um, the responsibility that comes with that speech or indeed traceability and other things that, um, that I think, especially on this side of the Atlantic, we care about in addition to free speech is just how we balance that with other with other rights and also with the ability to kind of scrutiny and hold people to account in terms of in terms of in terms of, of speech. Yeah, and yeah, then there was I a Pew Research sorry, thing, yeah. Hugh, there, which is really interesting, where they actually found that like sixty seven percent, so two thirds of all Americans, actually felt that it was okay to make violent statements on the internet in the interest of freedom of expression. In Europe, it was less than half. And in Asia, it was only around a quarter. It was around 25%. So these things are, are really kind of culturally specific and depend on how individualistic a society is almost as well. So what should we think about that? Because in, in the United States, for, for good or real, and many would say that in many cases for good, it's probably, you know, the, the, the position of the First Amendment in their constitution means that free speech of all sorts is protected more than it is, say, as you say, in, in most European countries. So Nazis can march through Jewish neighbourhoods and, you know, they're pretty... They're protected by people, you know, arguing on behalf of civil rights and free speech in a way that wouldn't happen in Germany, for example, in the way that the laws are. And then you add to that, you add to that libertarianism, the fact that the internet that we have is an internet that was developed on a set of business principles, mostly devised in Northern California, uh, which really reinvented the advertising industry uh, in a really aggressive way. And that sort of goes together. These two things go together when we look at what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's one thing thinking about freedom of speech if it's, you know, one group of people marching through one town or whatever. And we've had to come to grips with that in, in Northern Ireland about where those kind of limits are in in the real world. But it's a very different thing when you put it together with the affordances of the well, first of all, the advertising um, on social media and how that's driven, but really the algorithms and how the algorithms are there to capture your attention. And then we know that things that make you pay attention are things that trigger negative emotions. So if you can trigger hate or fear, somebody's going to stay with your story much more. So that's where you get the rabbit holes on uh, YouTube and the recommender systems where you keep going further and further down. And that's where an awful lot of... So it's kind of baked into the business model. Although in in a way, you know, that's baked into the traditional business model as well. As journalists, we know that, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, uh, that, you know, stories stories that, that hit people's emotions hard. I suppose the difference is, Liz, that it's driven now algorithmically um, in, a, in a way that is just, it's, it's, it's been multiplied by a thousand. Yeah, there are, I mean, there are quite a few differences. I think um, uh, in the traditional media space, you have an editorial um, uh, sort of decision making, which, which takes place, which is quite content based. So, you know, um, whereas, and, and, and it's ordinarily kind of, you know, made by humans and, the, and those humans are held accountable, whether that's through a legal system or through you know, um, a readership reaction or, you know, um, the, the, if, if that has consequences, they feed back to the person who made the decision. What's happening on, online is sort of a couple of things coming together, like, like Jane said. One of them is that, cur- you know, that curation, that decision making about what people are seeing is being based on a set of metrics which have nothing to do with the ordinary metrics that we that we apply to information when we figure out how far to spread it. It has nothing to do with quality. It has nothing to do with veracity or the source. Um, instead, it has to do with um, a, a set of 
metrics that we don't even understand because they write themselves within algorithms um, that are about maintaining attention at all costs. Um, you know, YouTube are starting to shift away a little bit from that, but that that is the kind of the primary motivator that they have. And something like 70% of time spent on YouTube is um, is people watching videos, not that they picked themselves, but that were automatically shown to them and decided upon by the algorithm. So that's huge responsibility to have on something which is entirely invisible and was not even written by a human. Never, you know, the code wasn't written. You know, it, 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 it's um, it's it sort of evolved and and, and and developed over time based on um, on learning from people's behavior. The other bit that's different is how easy it is to be um, inauthentic on the internet. So. Um, you know, I, and again, like Jane said, this stems to the business model. You know, if if I run a social media platform, I want as many accounts as possible. That's the metric that I've sold to my investors. Have just given me a couple of billion euro, right? So I want as many, um, you know, uh, accounts, and that's what I'm reporting on monthly. So I kind of keep quite a low barrier. Like if you've ever set up a Twitter or any account, it takes stick, you about thirty seconds. Takes you about thirty seconds, and that's deliberate. Um, but that does mean that you're not, you know, checking out: is this person real? Are they a robot? Are they where they say they are? None of those things are kind of happening. So it's very, very easy to build up, especially over time, and people can do it in quite sophisticated ways, networks that feel real. So whether you're impersonating someone or whether you're just, you know, um, actually you have a couple of thousand accounts on the go. So you can create a sense, and, and this is especially true to journalists and to, or to you know, decision makers, you can create a sense of momentum behind an idea and of people engaging, or you can abuse and harass people repeatedly with a lot of just nitpicking at them and content that by itself you know, might not count as you know, violating a policy, but mm. in the whole. Um, and, and you can do that quite easily. And again, a lot of these things come down to business decisions that have been made by companies in order to sort of um, just keep everything moving and, and keep keep the money coming in. So, I mean, there's there's huge amount of, there's two big, enormous things there. Maybe to touch, to go to the first one first, peop, a lot of people are familiar now with this story about YouTube as a as a platform for, for radicalization, that the kind of process which Liz it's is talking about there. It's been called the most there. powerful radicalizing instrument of the 21st century by... Precisely. Yeah, and, the and there have been, been some, you know, some good articles written recently about the effect of it and things like the recent Brazilian elections, which yeah. elected a far-right president, obviously, that people start with a perfectly innocuous piece of content. Because when we're talking about co- politics here often, we're talking about it in the absolute broadest sense. We're talking about personal issues, art, creativity in some sense, yeah. personal identity, gender, and the next thing you know, you're into conspiracy theories and you really don't know where where that wormhole of keeping you on that site at all costs is going yeah. to bring you. Yeah, no, exactly. So it just, it completely brings you brings you down a rabbit hole. And that's the problem with the with these recommender systems. So YouTube is especially bad in that because it kind of combines the, the sort of the algorithmic affordances of sending one thing to you, which is what, say, Facebook will do. So it will know what you're, like Facebook, when it reports its advertising, just lets us know, oh, um, it's all very innocuous. You know, we targeted you because you're a middle-aged woman from Dublin. But in fact, it'll be all sorts of other parts of my personality if I ever liked anything on Facebook, which I don't. But, you know, that they, that they, that they would know about that they'd be targeting you on. So they can target teenage girls on eating disorders. They can target teenage boys who've been shown to like things about triggering and so on and, and put it on. But the, YouTube is one stage further because it'll just keep going. So it's not just the one story, it's the next one, that old recommender thing. 
on YouTube. But the other problem is the is the WhatsApp side of it, which you, which you need to look at because there's a big thing here about encryption. And I know the House of Lords have a have a big um, consultation on it at the moment, and they're asking about this encryption. You know yourself, if you set up a WhatsApp group, you get you know this message. These messages are encrypted with end to end encryption, and people go, oh, okay, that's great. You know nobody can look at it. But on the other hand, it also means that Facebook can then turn around to regulators and say, oh, we don't know what was in those uh, Facebook posts. We can't regulate that. So, for example, in Myanmar, there were all sorts of uh, messages put out about the Rohingya. Um, and they, these were actually on WhatsApp groups. And uh, so Facebook can say, oh, well, we didn't really know that they were there. Afterwards, the UN actually cited them as being, you know, part of uh, genocide, which is, I think, a pretty extraordinary thing to happen to mm. um, a mainstream uh, company. And they, they sort of apologised. But nonetheless, that kind of WhatsApp end-to-end encryption is still there. That was part of the Brazilian thing. It was a large part of what went on in India when there were huge racial tensions. So you have to look at it. So it's not just the, the algorithms where they're feeding that to you. It's also then allowing people this completely blank, unaccountable space to be able to spread whatever message they want that we can't even look at, which is where it's going now. I suppose, listen yeah. to you, I, I don't know what, what we're supposed to do about this, mm. you know? I mean, it strikes me, and I've thought this for a while now, that the fundamental business models which you've described there are not amenable to the kind of regulation that some of us at least, you know, think think would be required. I mean, how do you regulate an algorithm? How do you make people um, responsible legally and perhaps financially for uh, for content which is shown to millions of people by an algorithm? How does one do that? Yeah, well, I mean, this is the thing that uh, is keeping me awake at night <laughs> because I've I've committed to spending the next couple of years trying to trying to figure out exactly the answer to that, to that question. And there's a big kind of debate going on as to whether or not this is something which needs to be done with platforms in terms of just sort of like tweaking and improving the kind of existing architecture of the internet that we have with the sort of dominant companies or um, kind of two alternate approaches, one of which is, um, and actually I, I saw, I think this week uh, in Australia, there's um, the, the kind of uh, monopoly um, um, organization within the government um, um, are following the cartels and, you know, in, institute in, in Germany and the US government in looking at whether or not there's a monopoly problem here, right? Whether like an antitrust approach, these things need to be broken up, they're too big. And then there's a whole other group of people who are, um, uh, who are, sort of saying like this is just fundamentally broken the business model the idea that you can create these massive data businesses um sell people's attention to the highest bidder and you know build attention absorbing platforms in order to serve people advertising that that just creates so many skewed incentives um that uh, the, you know there needs to be a fundamental change and you know if you look back at the kind of where the internet came from um a lot of the um, you know, like Tim Berners-Lee sort of, um, uh, you know, a vision was of something which was very open um, and not the kind of, you know, increasingly closed spaces that that, that have come to, to, to exist. Sure. But I mean, it, it still comes back to my fundamental question. Yeah. The only way that I think that this could be fixed is by breaking the business model of these, the most powerful companies in the world, it should be said. And it's not just the difficulties we've talked about here. There are all kinds of difficulties about uh, personal data yeah. and privacy and what's called their surveillance economy. And that's getting worse and worse. See kind of really scary stories this week about what's happening with facial recognition technology being implemented with no consent of the people who are being observed. Yeah. Um, and, it just seems out of control. And, and there's like, there's a fundamental problem, which is, 
we don't have visibility of what's going on. Like, you know, people talk about the Cambridge Analytica scandal. The, that data breach happened years before that was a, a story. And a lot of these things are happening in very closed spaces. You know, algorithms are invisible. Data data practices are are, are not scrutinizable. Um, advertising activity isn't isn't transparent. And so it's like a kind of almost like a precursor to answering your, your big question, which is we need to know what's going on before we're even able to think about what regulation looks like. I think the most interesting example at the moment is the UK um, have a white paper on online harms, um, which they uh, they just close a consultation around. And in that, what they're proposing is um, to have a duty of care, a legally backed duty of care on um, platforms um, for ensuring that um, kind of within the design of their systems, they're not um, encouraging or enabling online harms. Um, it's been quite controversial, um, I think, in part because it's sort of sitting in the UK government between the department responsibility for digital stuff and the Home Office. Mm. Um, and there's sort of powers are being written in to sort of determine what type of speech is allowed and not allowed, allowed beyond sort of like your you know, uh, criminal speech, so like child pornography. There's certain types of speech that are illegal. There's others which are classified as harmful um, and people have questions about who gets to decide Sure, because that's that. really problematic. It's it? really, really problematic. And so um, the, the the group of kind of um, partners that we're working with in the UK who are looking at this, they're, you know, trying to sort of shift the focus more to um, how, how can we build in a legal responsibility for um, the way that... Uh, the design of the platforms, be that the you know, things we've been talking about, uh, the algorithmic design, you know, um, authentication, identification of our artificial networks, overseas interference, all the kind of the, the things. How are they building an understanding of that into the design? Because there's a little bit of like, it feels almost like that kind of like banality of evil thing where you have these like quite clever people who are very good at writing code and building things sure. who have stumbled onto being the mediators of the world's information and conversations. And that people are dying. Um, you know, uh, the Burma case, lots of cases in Nigeria and other places. And so like they need to take that responsibility on. But we need that to have a legal backing I and no figuring out how it happens. Mark Zuckerberg happened. or Jack Dorsey no, to do that. very few people have. Look at the, very few people like have. You need either the US to do it or the EU, EU to do yeah. it. They're the only two. Um, the US are looking at antitrust, so break it up into Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram. That might be a start. Maybe there'd be some way and people are kind of saying, as Liz said, you know, these are a bit like the kind of the the rubber barons from before or big tobacco before is regulated and we need to just get in there and regulate it and it's like it took another... half a century for antitrust laws to come in in the United States Absolutely. you know you're talking about huge value. look at big tobacco and, big and tobacco is a very good example and look in at terms the lobbying uh, that yeah. they would that they will be doing and then you look at the EU and so the EU asked Facebook to do something quite small in terms of political advertising for the last European elections which was just to have a database of political ads that you could see and you could see like what way they were being targeted mm. and we had a project that we're working on it'll be the report has been released in in uh, a couple of weeks but the initial things are very much that there was absolute there was no transparency there was no way of even looking at it there, you could see ads that were there but you couldn't find them on the database you could see ads on the database but you couldn't find them in the other way the kind of things that they were saying that they were targeted by were just the very general kind of your sex and your region and yet we know that they were selling advertising to people on all sorts of other characteristics mm. and they weren't at all open about that mm. and the whole thing was just an absolute mess Twitter was the same Twitter's um, 
put in its political advertising database and it disappeared within a week. So you had to download it within within that kind of time. And the same thing with Google. So the three of them kind of went, yeah, yeah, sure, to the commission and then did the minimum not very good job. And w- so they're actually, if if they were nervous of the commission, they'd have done a really good job but they're not. of that. And well, they're, obviously not. And we're familiar with a yeah. pattern, aren't we, of them holding up their hands after the fact when they're finally caught, oh, well, you know, doing something, and they say that's up. terrible. We're going to do better from from here on in. Yeah. And they've done that too many times now. They they're, and, they're clearly and, lying. And, and it's it, just the it's just the playbook. Oh, really? Oh, that isn't what we meant. We were here to save the world. Uh, we'll we'll do better next time. What's interesting though is what's the default, right? And so the default at the moment is business as usual, and and that's been the uh, approach to internet regulation from from the beginning um you know and and it was it was built into the you know the e-commerce directive in Europe and so sort of similar laws they had in in the US that this is you know the internet is a good thing and we need to just sort of like stand back um there was a decision made to not make um online platforms responsible for content yes. and that's what enabled you know um the the great resource that that we have to exist and the argument really was that um a, a social networking site or some other service is more like a more like a telephone service than it is like a media yeah, publishing company. Be, like if you think no, about the it, telephone company isn't liable. The for internet a was ultimately a very decentralized thing. So yeah. everybody had to, and this was part. So if you go back to the kind of the Berners Lee thing, it was the decentralization. Whereas these networks are ultimately the most centralized thing. So they hold all of the your personal data about your personality, your likes, your dislikes, your vulnerabilities. In, in a server that is just accessible to them and that they can then sell access to this to uh, to advertisers. So some of the newer social networks that people are trying to come up with are more decentralised. So they're a bit like, was it uh, Napster, where, you know, bits of your film were everywhere and you kind of downloaded them all together to, to get to what... So this kind of... So the information would be decentralised. So one person can't then say, OK, this is you, Linehan, Come advertise so this to him. Some kind we of know blo- blockchain-based yeah. kind of or, yeah, use of information. But also a kind of a very much a decentralized one, mm. um, where there isn't advertising. Maybe you pay for the thing. Maybe you pay to be on it. But, you know, the, a, so there has to be different ways of kind of looking at it. But the way they're actually set up, I think, is just fundamentally unreformable. Um, and the way the algorithms are, I don't think it can work. But from a regulation point of view, so we've we've taken this approach of, well, you go ahead, knock yourself out, innovate, and then if a problem comes up, we'll scramble and try and deal with it. That's sort of been the approach, and it's much too slow, especially when we can't actually see what's going on. Um, and, and, you know, we don't see the impacts until years after decisions have been made. I mean, it was move fast and break things was, you know, literally... And they now say, I heard Zuckerberg on a podcast last week going, motto. it's now move fast and... I can't remember five other kind of words of, you know, and make the world a better place or something. But, you know. <laughs> but if we if we look at other areas of, of, of regulation, um, like I, I think there's, there's quite interesting parallels in, say, like uh, where pollution, like say like the EPA came from. Right. So, um, you know, in, in, in the US around like, the this, this silent spring, you had this sort of moment of environmental awakening in the 60s and 70s when people saw that actually this kind of allowing for untrammeled industrial progress was having negative impacts um, and that there needed to be a change of approach and sort of looking at things in a very different way. And and now if you look at a lot of environmental regulation, it's not you go ahead and 
dump that in the river and then we'll see if the fish start dying. It's we have to have a look before decisions are made, um, you know, in, in, in order to sort of try and understand what is a cautionary principle, this, this sort of thing and try and understand what's happening. Another interesting parallel is but if then you look at people dr- like the Koch brothers or whatever who who would have been funding... Koch brothers are major financiers of, major of the financier Republican and, Party candidates and, in the United States. Yeah, and major financiers and major part of the kind of Cambridge Analytica thing and, and so on and funding an awful lot of uh, of that. Like one of the things they actually want, ironically enough, is less regulation, including of the environment. And so actually the people who are funding this are very deliberately doing it in order to go back to that kind of pre-regulation era. And you saw Trump when he came in, one of the first things he did was start cutting back on some of that that regulation. And there's parallels with the people who want the regulation. Are they snowflakes for wanting, you know, clean rivers or not wanting mountains to be blown uh, apart in Kentucky or whatever? Do you know, so there's... Can, can, can we talk a, a little bit about what this actually means mm-hmm. in terms of what people might see if they're on a social media platform at the moment? The one I use most is Twitter because I'm an old guy. And um, and one of the things that I see on Twitter, and of course I'm choosing what to see, to, to at least to some extent, um, is a kind of an expression of, call it white nationalism, white racism. Um, it's not among people I follow directly, but it gets into my feed one, one way or another. It taps into some of these um, right-wing uh, conspiracy theories about, about immigration, um, often anti-Semitism, uh, often very carefully couched, I suspect, in order to get around some of the guards that, sure, are, yeah. that are supposedly there. What am I seeing there? Am I seeing something which is a, an underbelly of Irish society, which are views which might be held by a larger amount of people than we think? Or am I seeing some amplification by a very small number of people? I think if I could answer that question, Hugh, I'd be, uh, <laughs> I'd be, I'd be doing very well. But that is the big question. And it's the, at the moment, it's a fairly unanswerable question. Like, so, uh, you know, I, I sort of work in this area. And one thing I have to remind myself on a kind of weekly or daily basis is... The, the, the bit that we're working on, the technology bit, is something like 10 to 15 percent of a lot of the bigger, scarier, broader conversations that are happening. And the two are, I think, very interlinked and they're kind of enabling each other. Um, but, you know, like they, they are they are quite separate, quite separate, quite separate problems. Um, and, you know, I, I, I met a couple of weeks ago in London with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, their um, team whose role it is to try and deal with pandemics. So, like, they're looking at the the, the resurgence of, of Ebola and Congo and, like, the, the Zika outbreak. Their biggest concern is disinformation on social media. They, like, um, uh, uh, Heidi Larson, who heads that up, she had an article in, I think it was Science a little while ago, saying the next pandemic, our problem won't be not having the inoculation, you know, won't be not having the science right. It will be we will not be able to convince people that they need to go to the clinic, that they need to get their vaccination. And um, like this is uh, like obviously, you know, if you look at it in that context, within a public health context, it's a big part of what they're doing. But they also have to look at, um, you know, what are the motivations of people who are spreading this, you know, this this sort of like um, anti-science, anti-vax content. But also, why is it finding from? such a receptive audience? Why is it finding a receptive audience? And, 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 where, is it, is and, like and where is it not finding a receptive audience? So it's not finding a receptive audience in the UK where 95% of people 
trust the NHS and trust doctors. So while there's the same level of saturation of online anti-vax content in the UK, the, the, you know, the, the NHS are still doing very well in terms of vaccination coverage. So like so many of these things, it's like what is the offline trust environment, information environment people are living in? I think we saw that during the referendum here. So I was in my internet bubble. I wasn't engaging with, with any other part of the campaign because I was just monitoring the online space. And me being in that world, I, I mean, I got a big argument with about this. Like, you know, I was like, it's going to be 95%, you know, one way, whatever it was, right? And like, you know, because the, the, the information environment and the offline environment were just so different mm. in that context. Um, and there was, there was like, and, and, and so I think, you know, how do we uh, reconcile do, those? How do we figure out what's real and what's not real? And this is why I think, you know, some of the stuff that's going on at the moment where some of this online world is spilling offline with these demos down with, in virus street outside with different the google things. headquarters like, like at least that's kind of manifesting in the real world I mean, I mean we can sort of see okay well what is going on in irish society that's a different question that's not a technology question that's a question for people who are who are thinking about you know what kind of um what kind of politics do we want what kind of debates do we want what kind of society do we want how do we have those debates you know should we be having those debates and for a long time i think people like didn't find ways to express views uh, in, in every part of the spectrum, um, uh, you know, in, in Ireland. And the internet enabled a lot of that, enabled a lot of LGBT rights, enabled a lot of uh, reproductive rights conversations. And, and now it is enabling, um, uh, you know, people who have kind of, uh, you know, far right or, or different views to sort of organize. Um, that's happening at a moment when we also know there's a lot of inauthentic amplification, inauthentic behavior online. And so, like, we we need to it's a genuine question we need to know like you know is this a part of our society you know is this going to translate into politics and how do we have how do we figure that out and and, and how do we um as a as a society talk about those questions like separate from our conversation about how are we going to regulate the internet and get it to work properly because we know when you mentioned salvini um we know that as this digital revolution has happened in parallel with it and correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation but in parallel with that we have seen a rise of the radical right of racist views being more acceptable in general discourse than they were than, mm. than, than they were previously. It's the most notable political change in Western democracies of the last, certainly of the la- of the last ten years. Yeah. Um, and it's hard not to believe that there is a relationship to some degree well, between been, those two. Yeah, things. there's been a good deal of research which has shown that there is a, a relationship. Like one of the um, one of the things that you that you do if uh, if you're in a kind of a fringe. Um, uh, political movement is you try to create some sort of spectacle that gets some sort of media attention. You frame it around the um, issues. So I presume if you're out parading around in front of HQs of uh, of uh, corporations, you're you know you're create you're hoping to create some media attention. You uh, frame it around the kind of issues that you wanted framed around, which are probably going to be. The kind of things that are easily susceptible to conspiracy theories. So vaccines are, Salvini used it in, uh, even though nobody actually believes that Salvini doesn't believe in the medicine of vaccines. It's a really handy shortcut, a really handy heuristic into people who have other, who are more inclined to believe other conspiracy theories. And then Ex- once, Explain that to me. So it, once you believe one conspiracy theory, it's much easier to believe other conspiracy theories. So because you buy into the whole notion of a deep state or you buy into the notion of kind of mainstream media having a, a liberal bias that, are, that is against you or you so you buy into the, the notion of elites being out to 
to get you in some way and and your family so you feel under threat so once you're once you can buy into one of these conspiracies it's much easier to get you into the other ones so that's one of the reasons like with with teenage boys they get them in the beginning about kind of very sort of small things about um how people are trying to undermine them and these girls accusing them of misogyny or whatever, you know, are just being snowflakes. And then, you know, they gradually get brought more and more in until you see some of them probably end up with the, the kind of white supremacy kind of uh, kind of views and things. But part of it after you frame it is then hopefully you get to actually be a martyr. Because then if you can be a martyr to the to the mainstream media, then everybody all the conspiracy theories behind it will buy into into yours. So that's a that's a well kind of trodden it's playbook or, vulnerabilities or that that uh, that that young people in particular have because they're public online. They're they're individual publishers in a way that no previous generations ever were. So it becomes very very easy to manipulate manipulate very them easy. through psychological techniques, well tried, like, well, like right. humiliation, uh, getting them to kind of feel part of a you know part of an part, out group. Part of, yeah, yeah, feel part of an out group. Feel part of you know their tribe is this kind of out group that's being downtrodden by. You know these uh, snow who are trying to, and then that leads ultimately to the the great replacement theory, which is you know the one where you know we we've seen the awful outcomes in in New Zealand and El Paso and and uh, and elsewhere, and that's you know so it's all it's part of the one thing. But I haven't actually seen a study on um, Irish online media, as Liz was saying, that would actually say how real. You know, how many people are actually here and how many are bots and how many are fake accounts. Mm. But I know I looked at my own and again, I'm mostly on um, on Twitter and there's five people I follow who seem to me to retweet everything else. So presumably a lot of the ones they're retweeting, they're from America and so on. Some of them are bots, some of them are fake accounts, some of them are real people. But there's kind of five people who are doing it, but they're doing a heck of a lot of retweeting. Now, I still follow them because I'm interested in seeing what it is they do. Other people would would block them. But it doesn't look to me like there's huge numbers of them because I've actually gone in and looked and they seem to be based in the States. They seem to be based Mm. in other countries a lot of the time and small numbers of kind of people who I know are real because their name is on it. And I have an idea what they look like in the real world. But it doesn't look to me like there's an awful lot of them. Yeah. It, 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 it strikes me that the, I mean, this environment is so malleable and so difficult even to talk about, you know, to, to comprehend. I mean, there's the whole, apart from the main social networks, there's, you know, the sites like I mentioned, 8chan earlier. There's Gab, which yeah. is a kind of alternative mm-hmm. Twitter, which is very popular with, with people on the far right. I think the uh, the guy who shot up a synagogue, synagogue in Philadelphia uh, posted posted material on Gab just before it's he, got, he did that. I think 25 times as much hate speech on Gab as on Twitter. So th- one argument about Getting these people off the main social networks is they'll just congregate on these other ones. Is that is that a fair criticism or? I mean, I, I think uh, you know if we look at it from from the tactics of if we look at these people as influencers, right? If we look at it from from their point of view, um, you probably want a space where you can build a community and where you can. Um, you know, whether it's you're kind of pulling people into that space, you're providing them with content, you're providing them with ideas, you know, that kind of like safe space for uh, for, for for sharing ideas, for creating memes, for doing whatever, and also for planning um, kind of, you know, information campaigns, uh, for want of a better word. What's what's different between them and I think the sort of the mainstream platforms um, 
is that those are kind of used more, that much more kind of external facing, right? So, um, uh, you know, there's no point in you going on um, on, on, on Gab um, in order to try and um, harass, uh, let's say, a female politician out of the public domain because she's not on there and other people aren't seeing it. You do that on Twitter. So, you, you know, you, you organize on in these spaces and then you kind of like deploy information, uh, you know, campaigns, in particular harassment and campaigns. And you link back and things. So like one of the things that Twitter and Facebook could do this afternoon is not allow any links to sites that are known to be associated with uh, with white supremacy and terrorism. So they could just say, nobody can anymore post a link to 8chan or Gab on Facebook. And have they said why they won't, do, why they haven't or won't do that? Freedom of speech. And... Then they they also you can even get Facebook recommendations on uh, D- Dana Boyd, who's done some really great great work on this, has shown kind of stories that have shown up on Facebook in their recommender systems from Gab that are based about like really really seriously anti-Semitic um, replacement conspiracy theories and that sort of thing, mm. and they're actually showing up in the in the recommender systems there. So there's all sorts of so the guys might organise, and I think it's mostly guys, but some some women as well, on 8chan or, or Gab, but they rely on being able to come into Twitter, not only to do the harassing of female politicians, but also to pick up more followers mm-hmm. because they don't have huge numbers over where they are. So they rely on Facebook or Twitter or even on uh, the New York Times or the Irish Times reporting on them. And then people searching for them and Google profiling them. And so they rely on the whole ecosystem. Um, like w- there was another one, the Daily Stormer. And there was a big fuss about about that because it was really associated with really quite... It's a, it's a Nazi website. It's a Nazi website, yeah. essentially. And so the, then there was pressure on the, the company that was actually supplying the in- internet infrastructure to keep, to keep it up. And so they eventually, so in the beginning, its owners were kind of saying, Cloudfair was called, were saying, no, no, kind of freedom of speech. But then they came under enough, enough pressure that they, you know, deplatformed it and took it off so they, they wouldn't host it any longer. And something similar happened with 8chan. I and think, then with 8chan, well. something yeah. happened. So, yeah. you know what I mean? So there's ways for legitimate companies but that's a to even be regulated of, through isn't, head isn't there a difficulty there that, that yeah. whoever it is, I have no idea who they are, who own that, that web service that was able to take to take down the, that other yeah. site, they're making a decision based on who knows what. And we saw some of this, uh, well, in, this in our own way with our own, with, our, with our own referendum when decisions were made by social media platforms not to accept advertising and one, one might or might not have agreed with that decision. But one thing we know about that decision was it was completely impermeable. We couldn't see how the decision was made. Yeah, and so I think it comes why, back to your original you know. question of regulation. And, you know, so if you're actually looking at, which some of them are and Liz referred to, um, looking at following kind of some of the German anti-hate speech regulation and so on. You can make that a responsibility not just of the platforms, but of the companies that host the content. I mean, I think it's it's very difficult to... Um, like the, the internet exists in order to enable like-minded people to come together and, and to discuss things. And some people are going to be doing that about things that we that we don't like. Um, there is... And, and, and I mean, I... What can you do about that? You can you can you can whack a mole, you know, various sites, but other ones do inevitably pop up, sure. and and you are creating, you're feeding into that martyrdom kind of complex, and you're making it more difficult for analysts because you know the the system evolves, it gets it gets better, and it gets harder and harder to 
to scrutinize, right? Um, there, are the, what uh, what the mainstream platforms do is um, they are the intermediary between your ordinary citizen and and um, and and some of these and some of these um, information spaces, and they're also the place through which we get a sense of public opinion. Right, um, you know, maybe I, a skewed sense though, and and it is undoubtedly a skewed sense. Like uh, you know, I was just look, looking up there. Like Facebook reckon five percent of all active accounts are fake, but um, in between January and March of this year, they took down two point two billion fake accounts, and that's uh, that Buzzfeed reported that earlier in the year. A huge amount of the internet is fake or inauthentic. So you know, it's not really um, that a twenty-three-year-old woman who's you know who's following you and, and asking all sorts of things you know we don't know what it is we don't know where the motives are so much of the internet and of the, the internet that we see is absolutely fake it's just not real and so what what is problematic from a from a politics from a discourse point of view is how um you know no matter where it's organized like how is that um, influencing discourse influencing our perception of reality creating a sense among people and pulling people in because you know, um, and again, this, this an algorithmic part of this. You, you know, you can be surrounded by an information environment which where you're just getting these same toxic messages through YouTube. You know, you, you don't need to go on to what's on to Gab or A channel like on YouTube. You know, the thing that you know you also maybe do your homework on, right? If you're looking for information about something or you're you're, you're catching up on a TV show, and that's like this is this is one of the the deep problem. And I, I think that's where we need to look at regulation is because that's the interface, right? That's the interface between most people um, and, and the internet, and it's the bit where people get sucked in, and it's the bit where the manipulation of the information environment can but happen. But given that the internet, as you say, enables people to kind of, like-minded people to come together in a way that they were never able to do mm. previously, that, well, no matter what regulation you bring in, that's kind of fundamentally changed the way in which people take collective action of whatever yeah, sort, and we're talking political case. action and, here. And, yeah, one and of the things we're doing in provenance yeah. is actually looking at that, so trying to understand the... Um, how can you actually enable people to be able to understand what it is? So um, one of the things we're trying to build is this kind of um, little marker that'll tell you why it is that this has turned up in your feed. So has it turned up in your feed because this is on a lot of your friends' feeds? Has it turned up in your feed because it has a particular emotion that they think will target you? Has it turned up in your feed because you've looked at this topic before? So to try to get people to understand and to think that, you know, when I look at my Facebook news feed, it's not just random stuff I'm seeing here. The Facebook algorithm is deciding what to target me with and to get people to think, why am I being targeted with this? Are they trying to game me? So if you try to increase people's critical thinking, that's probably actually one of the best mm -hmm. defences against mm -hmm. it. So I think that's what we need to do is to really think. And it's not just kids. People say, oh, put it into transition year. Like some of the people who's, who spread the most disinformation in the US are over the age of 50 because they they're the ones who really don't understand the affordances of the, of the internet and, and of social. So it's not just a thing about uh, education kids. So I think there's a huge job of work to be done to increase people's kind of critical capacity. So they just stop and think, why is this in my feed? Should I like or share it? You know, why is YouTube sending me down this ra rabbit hole? Should I get out of it? So, like, that's actually going to be the best defence at the end of the day is mm. if people can stop and think. The other thing I wonder about, finally for the moment, but we will come back to this subject in the, in the future, is the role of 
me and my colleagues in the media and this building which we're in at the moment, I, I, I think we've dealt with this subject incredibly badly over the years. Um, I think that's partly inflected by the fact that, that our traditional business model is under threat from the business models proposed by these companies. So there's, we have skin in the game to an extent and also we're, we're competing for space for space with them. So the responsibility on us and then as journalists, I think there's the difficulty of you're afraid of amplifying, but you don't want to self-censor either. Yeah. And what's the, you know, what the line between those two is very grey. I was looking at an argument on Twitter, as I do, a couple of weeks ago between the News Talk presenter Kira Kelly and a number of people about amplification and who bore responsibility for it. And she was getting lots of flack back about people who news talk had had on. I made the terrible mistake of getting involved and I was then getting flack yet again for that bloody alt-right article that the Irish Times published a, a year and a half ago and people were suggesting that that represented the policy of the Irish Times and I was trying feebly in 280 characters to argue that it wasn't and the whole thing was just a just a mess you know in terms of definition self-definition where we fit in this and how we cover this properly you know. Well, and, and, and there's a there's a question of like, what beat is this? Right. Yeah. And so there's probably um, between uh, 10 and 15 journalists globally um, who are, you know, and actually uh, Donny in, in CNN, who's who's from Donny O'Sullivan. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah who's, who's from who, um, uh, um, X-Storyful. Storyful alumni. Yeah. Um, uh, and a couple of others. There's quite a few Irish people knocking around. But um uh, you know, people who are looking at this thing, like they don't even have a name for their beat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which is, you know, what is the intersection of technology, discourse, and, um, you know, I think for a lot of people specifically, this rising kind of far right or anti-science or anti, you know, an, an, an anti-migrant, whatever this this sort of like emergent and um, technologically enabled political ideology sort of is. And people who are looking at that and there isn't even a, a name for that yet. And I think I think um, Aaron Rogan in Ireland is actually quite good. He's moved to Sunday Business Post. Um, he and a few other people are quite good at not, you know, having the story or not doing the thing about the content, right? Yeah. Um, but instead looking at, so like when, when we look at sort of like um, um, malign information campaigns, it's, it's, it's you know, A, A, B, C, and then sort of like infrastructure. So it's like actor, behavior, content, and then the infrastructure. So who, you know, who are the people who's behind them? What's going on here? What's the behavior? What's the intent? What's the goal? What's the strategy? The content is one small piece of it. And then the mm-hmm. art and then, and then the infrastructure, you know, how is technology enabling this? And I think keeping as much of a focus, not necessarily on, 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 on the content, um, you know, and, and I, I get that people want to subtweet in order to say that they find this outrageous. You know, I, I, I get that. Um, but if you look at the behavior of the act, if you look at the strategy, the strategy is meet, reach as many people, piss people off, outrage people. And then, you know, some people who see that will go and look at your stuff and then, then they'll be, you know, they'll, 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 yeah. sort of, they'll potentially be in that cycle. You're and just you make, falling you make, for the bait from the troll. Yeah, you make money. If, yeah. you, if you hate watch a YouTube video, they make money. Right, like, like, like there was a financial transaction that takes place because you're you're getting showed ads around that. And at the heart of this is, is it maybe money? Is that where we? Really I mean, address this in the end. Money is do a something huge, about the, the money incentives. Huge, huge part of it. It is a big, big part of it. And uh, you know, YouTube are looking at demonetizing certain pages. Um, you know, like we, we probably talk for a, a, a different time about like how this is intersecting with um, political financing, transnational mm. political financing, but also a lot of money being channeled into building out these inauthentic networks and, 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 and new sites. And that is a business. And then you sell these networks to political campaigners. That's happening in the US. Money's a big, big, big part of it. But I think also the main thing is like for the 
for the likes of the media like the Irish Times is just to to think, okay, deciding who to amplify is not the same as curtailing somebody's freedom of speech. And so a lot of the time, uh, different players try to game the kind of media by saying, oh, you know, the the there's this liberal bias in the media and then journalists kind of look at each other and go, well, maybe, you know, a lot of my friends are quite lit. So and then they kind of overcorrect on the, on the other way. So you can see that like in the poor BBC, like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Tories are always on about how there's a, a Labour bias in the BBC. And but I would challenge anybody to find any piece of kind of primetime TV which has could in any way be pro-Labour from the BBC in the last year and a half. Uh, you know, and so journalists are just kind of self-correcting all the time well, about if you this, and they're being told this. If you get a situation like further. that argument, which I was yeah. talking to you about uh, about Twitter, a lot of people came back to me and said, "Well, it's a disgrace." The Irish Times promotes alt-right people like the Diona Institute, uh, people who are opposed to to abortion rights. I said, "That is not." You may disagree with them as profoundly as you want, but that is not what we're talking about That's when we the, talk about. Yeah, yeah. So some of your regular columnists aren't actually part of the. No. Uh, Aren't actually part of the of the alt right. On the other hand, there there was uh, other people who are part of Opus Dei and things who that isn't actually noted when they do write and things. So then, mm. so That's then people get very up- noted in this podcast anyway. <laughs> you know, so then people get very upset about yeah. that kind of thing. So there's there's kind of a, a there's kind of a balance to it. And uh, you know, I see what Liz is saying. You know, about you know people want to be subject, and you're never going to please all the people all the time. But I think you do have to be aware that you are going to be the subject of people who are specifically trolling you for your liberal bias in order for it to over to overcorrect. And you saw that a lot in American media in the, the 2016 campaign for mm. Trump, where, you know, they were... The media in America, uh, New York Times reporters would tell you they were gamed, they yeah. were played. I, I do think as well... Last thought, Liz. Yeah, l- l- last thought, just to your point about the online, offline, I, I think this is... This is the type of content we're seeing o- online is going to be increasingly a part of our offline um, political discourse, including around electoral processes. And I think our broadcasters in particular in Ireland have a decent amount of work to do, frankly, in um, preparing for what does the balance doctrine and the implementation of the balance doctrine look like in that context. And I think we saw a little bit of this um uh, in um, uh, sort of like in, in the couple of political events that happened last year, I think around the presidential election and around, around the referendum, you know, like what does the balanced doctrine look like in a context where you have legitimate political candidates who are running for office um, who are, you know, using speech that we would not ordinarily include in, um, in, in, in the media? How do we deal with that? Right. Um, Because a balanced doctrine to me is, uh, you know, about creating space for discussion and so that voters have access to all the information they need to make a decision. Um, I don't think I don't think we get that right in broadcast at the moment. Sometimes it can be well, you say your thing and you say your thing and they're going to shut everything down and we have the stopwatches and it's all fine. That's not, you know, and and the BAI have said that that's not what it is. And like people who who are in that space need to be engaging with and understanding the tactics, the behaviour, the techniques of the online space because that's increasingly going to be a part of our mainstream politics. Definitely, and that's a huge thorny question which I am definitely going to return to on this podcast because I think it's it's a really interesting one. Liz and Jane, thanks very much for coming in today.
And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and engineer, JJ Vernon. And remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. We're available on Spotify as well. And your views are always very welcome. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.